So I do the chanting again just before I do the talk. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Murang damang sangang namasami. So what I'd like to speak about tonight is the interface between the Buddha's second noble truth of the ending of suffering and neuroplasticity and rewiring for joy, which is actually not a small topic, but I'll give it a go. So we might need to fasten our seatbelts because we might have to rock and roll this one a little bit. So in 1979, when I was in the class of UC Santa Cruz and sitting in the lecture hall, and Jack Engler was talking about the Buddha Dharma, and here I was, this bright-eyed 17-year-old person listening to this stuff and thinking like, OMG, this is awesome. And so for me, what was awesome was that there was a really clear description that there is dukkha. So... In my experience, just having the first noble truth named, that there is stress, that there is dukkha, that there is pain, that there is suffering, that there is sorrow, for me was regulating to my experience. It was true for me that that actually was correct. I didn't need lots of examples. I had plenty in my own experience that that resonated with me as true. There is stress. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of stress. And oftentimes in our world, particularly in our North American world, we are hugely habituated at looking outside for the causes of the stress. We are looking at what's going on in the world, in the politics, in the people, what somebody said, what the weather is doing, whether our stuff is okay, whether our body is okay. It's an out there kind of a relationship. And what the Buddha is talking about is is he turns it on its head and says that the cause of stress is actually because we do not want what is going on to be going on. And so the problem is not our achy body, or Ernst just told me about this new word I'd never heard, when our brains can no longer remember things and it acts like a sieve, then we are sieving. And for this demographic, many of us are sieving. <laughs> Our brains are no longer holding things right, okay? And so we think of the stress as the thing that's out there. If only I could remember better. If only. If only... If only, if only, if only we didn't have fires, if only we didn't have climate change, if only, if only, if only we had people in the politics that we had more confidence about, you know, if only. It's out there. And so what the Buddha did was he turned it on its head and said that the real problem is what is going on. We do not want it to be there. And it's that desire for not wanting, that's actually the cause of our own suffering. 
And so in this circumstance, he delineated the difference between the innate physical pain and difficulty that comes from a body sensation or experience which is unpleasant, an emotional impact which is unpleasant, and that what we do with that. So if our physical body, if we have a broken leg, it's going to hurt and it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable and inconvenient as long as it heals because we're going to need to have it in a cast. That's the physical part of it. And having a body, we can't disappear that reality. But we do have a lot of choice about how we relate to it. And so when the physical things that we experience, we don't want to have, then we add an extra layer, and that extra layer is what he described as suffering. So the first noble truth is that there is sorrow, there is stress, there is dukkha. The second noble truth is that there is a cause of dukkha. The third noble truth is that there is an ending of dukkha, that there is a path, there is a way to release the suffering, and the way to release the suffering is to be present with the desire for it not to be there and to relax that desire. And then the fourth noble truth is the pathway, the eightfold noble path that brings together all the causes and the conditions that sets us up and supports us to be able to develop the muscles of our mind and the integrity of our body, our heart, and our speech, so that we can live in a way which is congruent, so that we have the capacity to focus our attention and do this work of seeing where we are gripping and release our grasp so that we release the suffering connected to it. You with me? You following? So it's a magnificent teaching absolutely magnificent teaching because it talks to us about how we get into this tangle and then how we can untangle the tangle. Where the suffering, where the gripping is actually coming from and how to focus our attention so it starts and then eventually releases. So the second noble truth, when you look into it with more depth, is the description of codependent arising. The Pali word for that is patichu samupada. And what that is talking about is the specific ingredients that cause this cathecting of tightness to take place. And there's 12 links. And the first on this chain is ignorance. When we don't see things clearly, it causes our habits to be created. And those habits then imprint our body, our speech, our beliefs, our ways of thinking. And then those habits that have been imprinted with ignorance 
prime our sense gates to look and to perceive the world in a way that reinforces and supports the habit. And then that sets us up so that when we experience something, we are perceiving it through the lens of the habit. And then that perception causes our mind to think and associate in a particular way, which supports the contraction. And the contraction supports wanting to be different. And the wanting to be different supports this tumbling forward into this process known as suffering. So when we look at this whole map of these ingredients, we can begin to see the places where we can focus our attention and make different choices. And one of the things that we need to start waking up to is the habits that have been conditioned by ignorance. What do they look like? The habits of anxiety, the habits of preoccupation, the habits of excessive worry, the habits of thinking that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, the habit of thinking that I am insufficient, the habit of self-criticism, the habit of self-shaming, the habit of thinking that I'm to blame or that somebody else is to blame. These are habits. They are supported by beliefs. And when we follow them, when we believe them to be true, the result of following them and believing them to be true is that they cause more stress. They don't end up in anything helpful. So we need to unravel that cycle. And part of the way that we unravel that cycle is by recognizing these habits for what they are and to learn to focus our attention in something that is either neutral or positive that redirects our attention. We're good so far? Okay, so this is basic Buddhist teaching. And one of the brilliance of the Buddhist teaching is that there are ways to develop the muscles of the mind so that we can focus our attention and become discerning around what is arising and then skillful about how we respond to it so that we begin to learn and to sense and to feel. We feel our body. We feel our heart. We feel the emotions that are arising. We begin to be discerning about the kinds of thoughts that are coming through our mind. And we have a way of deciding, is this healthy and wholesome? Is it not healthy? Is it not wholesome? The healthy things, the wholesome things we encourage, we support. The ones not so much we do not believe in and we direct our attention elsewhere. Good? All good. Okay, this is Buddhist teaching, and this Buddhist teaching is hugely helpful. Now, when you overlay on top of a human being uh, massive amounts of trauma, which happens in fires, which happens in accidents, which happens in surgery, which happens in however trauma happens, then what happens is our brain is, is affected. And so our capacity for discernment changes. 
Our ability to focus our attention changes. Our ability to see things and to notice them in the same way changes. And so our capacity to utilize the muscles of the mind that we have developed in our meditation is impacted by the traumas that we have experienced. And that impacts the different parts of our brain. So we have the frontal cortex, which is the part of our brain which is thinking and it is able to discern. There's the limbic system, which is the emotional part of our brain, which is also connected to the fight, flight, and freeze response. And then there's the reptilian brain, which is connected to the instinctual and uh, responses. Okay? So when we go through life and get slammed, which we can, then it impacts the way our brain functions. Now, the brilliance of neuroplasticity is that it takes patichu samapada, dependent co-arising, and utilizes it from the perspective of what happens when our brain is jammed into a stress response. So the Buddha's teaching talks about stress response as, a, as, a, as an inevitable part of what happens when we're living from a place of not seeing clearly. But neuroplasticity talks about the stress response that comes as a result of the brain getting jammed into a way of looking at things based on too much stress. And when that is present then there's this whole neurochemical and biochemical thing where it is much more challenging to turn your attention towards what is neutral or what is pleasant. So the basic instructions in our Buddhist teaching is to redirect our attention when we are experiencing something that's not helpful. But after a certain level of stress, our capacity is undermined and we have less ability to do that. And so we can see that when our anxiety goes through the roof, it's really hard from that perspective of having a tremendous amount of anxiety to turn our attention towards something that's healthy or wholesome or funny or laughing or joking or anything like that. When we feel completely overwhelmed, then our system sees everything around us that supports us feeling overwhelmed. When our system gets past a certain level of stress, then it looks, what it does is it looks to everything around that supports the stress we're in rather than supports us getting out of the stress that we're in. It becomes a little bit like Velcro, you know, it's sticky. And the more stressed we are, the more we gravitate towards more stress. So we end up with a spiral. Okay. Let me pause, tell you a story, and come back and talk about this. Okay. Yesterday was a big day. I went to the DMV to change my name. And this has been a long process. So I changed my name legally to Sister Tanasanti when I was a nun. And when I returned to civilian life, my name, Amatanasanti, I wanted to legally change my name because I'm no longer a sister. So yesterday I went to the DMV. And to legally change your name, you have to go through a performance with the court and the this and the that and the that. And then when you get the court, then you've got to 
apply for a Social Security card, and then you go with your Social Security card and your passport and your papers to the DMV, and the DMV is going to say, yes, you have a new driver's license, and this can be your name. So I go, and I give them my passport and my Social Security card and my legal name change papers from the court, and the clerk asks me a number of questions, hands me back some things, and then, uh, and then while he was doing this, there were people on my left and people on my right that he was also serving, and so there was this flurry of activity of people and papers and back and forth, and I, I don't know what happened. But he gave me back my papers, and I looked, and I didn't have my passport. And so I said, I don't have my passport. He said, I gave it to you. I said, I don't have it. You didn't give it to me. He said, I gave it to you. Yeah, I didn't give it to me. I don't have it. He said, I gave it to you. I don't have it. I didn't steal it. I didn't steal it. I didn't steal it. So he's yelling because he's feeling freaked out and defensive, and I'm having somebody yell at me, and I don't find my passport. So I look through my backpack. It's not in my backpack. I look through my papers. It's not in my papers. I look through my backpack again. It's not in my backpack. I look through my papers again. It's not in my papers. So I retraced my steps because I had to go fill out of something, and I went to the place, and it's not there, and I come back. I said, I don't have my passport. He said, I gave it to you. So the manager, who was level-headed, said, Calm down. That's not an appropriate way to talk. <laughs> Go ask and see if the passport was turned in. So I said, I don't have my passport. So I looked through my passport papers another time. So five times altogether, I looked through my passport stuff. No passport. So it's not on the floor. It's not behind the counter. It's not on the counter. It's not in my stuff. So he's saying, I gave it to you. And I'm saying, I didn't get it. So another clerk, who was also very level-headed, looked underneath the counter. And there was a gap on the counter that was a quarter of an inch wide. And underneath the counter was this box that held a bunch of stuff. And there my passport was. Okay, It had fallen in the crack. Now, what is so brilliant about this is that both his experience was that he gave it, and my experience was that I didn't get it. We were both right. The passport fell in the gap between giving and receiving. Okay? Now, when we found the passport, the clerk, who was completely wound up, because he interpreted my saying, I didn't get the passport, is that you stole my passport. And even though I said three times no, I have no thought that you deliberately took my passport. And to steal it, for me, means you would have had to have done that. He still kept hearing, he kept hearing that I was accusing him of stealing my passport. So he was completely wound up and through the roof with defensiveness and anxiety. And I don't have my passport, and my cortisol levels are through the roof because here's this guy who's shouting, I don't have my passport, and I have no idea what happened to it. So he leaves and goes to lunch. <laughs> 
And I leave with my passport and talk to the people who are in the DMV and start laughing with them. And we just start laughing. So we're just in the middle of the DMV and we're just laughing. And as we're laughing, my cortisol levels are calming down and I'm feeling more settled and feeling more at ease. Okay. So in neuroplasticity, I know that what happens is, is that when your brain gets hijacked by a limbic hijack, when your system goes into a stress response, it's really difficult for the neurochemistry to shift out of your system unless you deliberately redirect it into something that is completely different. And it's not helpful to go into silence from that place because in silence, the mind will go back into anxiety. It's not going to go into something else. But if I go speak to somebody and look at them in the eyes and find no reason at all to laugh, which we did, (laughs) looking at somebody with the eye contact grabs the relational part of my brain And laughing floods my system with all of the neurochemistry that tells me everything is fine. Okay? And so in a reasonably short period of time, I went from having my cortisol levels through the roof to feeling okay. All right? And that is because of the knowing of neuroplasticity and how to rewire my brain for joy which comes as the result of having gone through the fires and getting beaten up and having all kinds of health impact and not getting well with the things that I was doing, including the meditation practices. And so the neuroplasticity takes the Buddhist teachings, which understands the cause of suffering, and uses the language and the specifics of what happens past a certain threshold of stress in order to change the dynamic so that we can then shift our system in a way that's helpful. So this neuroplasticity is not interested in ending suffering, which is the Buddha's aim. It's interested in rewiring for joy. It's interested in flooding the mind-body system with the positive experience of joy, of laughter, of gratitude, all of these experiences, which are not alien. They're absolutely fundamental to the Buddhist teachings. But what has happened in the most probably in the last 50 to 100 years, is that neuroscience has been able to name some of the mechanisms of stress in language that is scientific. The Buddhist teachings have been absolutely magnificent and predate by 2,600 years the scientific explorations and language and are not antithetical, but for me, didn't have the same precision in being able to shift out of these stress responses after they get to a certain threshold. So I have become interested in rewiring for joy. And as a part of my neuroplasticity program, 
laughing is a fabulous medicine. And so my neuroplasticity community, all of us are there because our brains got tweaked for whatever reason. We don't ever talk about the reasons why our brains got all tweaked. That's, that's not what we talk about. But what is amazing is that this community meets regularly to laugh. And the laughing is a complete reset in our neurochemistry. It floods our system with everything that's healthy and positive and joyful. And when we feel like that, we feel well. And so the person who started laughing yoga, Dr. Kataria, is a medical doctor in India. And he started it because the adage, laughter is the best medicine, He did some research to actually substantiate that that was the case, that it was hugely effective in all kinds of of situations for people to reduce pain, to lower cortisol levels, to better their sleep, to reduce their, um, to get off medicines. It's a good form of exercise. And so he created laughter yoga as a way of supporting his patients to get well. So, here we have the scenario in the DMV, and we have my friend, the clerk, who's completely upset because he keeps hearing something that I'm not saying. (laughs) And it's making him upset because he knows that he didn't steal the passport and that he did give it. And I'm feeling anxious because I don't have it, okay? And so his thinking or looping was just to repeat the fact that she's telling that I stole it. And that was making his anxiety levels increase. Okay. I'm trying to figure out what happened and I don't find it in any of my stuff. It's not there. And I'm feeling the impact of his anxiety and it's impacting my cortisol levels. And so the people who had level-headed thinking to look in an in the not obvious place, we found it. And then my response was to go speak to people and laugh with them. Okay. In the DMV. <laughs> Why not? You can laugh anywhere. <laughs> and so for me, the interface between these two about the where suffering is created and how to release it, and the overlap of neuroplasticity and the specific practices that we can do that help turn our system in a way where we can flood ourselves with joy so that we can have a massive reset on on the system when it's under stress has been hugely impactful in my own health and well-being. And I am on this, in this community with other people, and we are sharing similar results, that when we do this, we feel better. And so while we are not speaking about what we are getting better from, we don't talk about illnesses and symptoms and what's wrong, but we do talk about our successes. And everyone is experiencing tremendous success. 
So I feel excited about this overlap, partly because it's where I'm at and it's what's helping me, and partly because as I look around in the world around me, I see more and more people who are experiencing really intense levels of stress and anxiety and depression, which are one of the things or those are symptoms of what happens when the brain gets jammed into a limbic response is that uh, yeah, di- all kinds of things are, are impacted. Digestion is impacted, sleep is impacted, anxiety levels, depression levels, they're all impacted. And so when I look around the world and I see the level of stress that people are navigating, I think we need some of this neuroplasticity stuff as a way of helping our systems really flood with joy and feel the blessings of that reset our system and it supports our capacity to then utilize the Buddhist teachings and do it for really good benefit. So, I've been doing uh, retreats on rewiring for joy and talks on rewiring for joy and bringing these two things together and uh, to good advantage. I've been seeing the benefit in myself and I've been happy to see that in other people as well. So with the neuroplasticity, one of the things that the, the, the way, the, like the languaging of neuroplasticity is that our, our systems have evolved so that we are highly responsive to things that are wrong, to things that are stressful. And part of the way that we have survived is by being highly sensitized when something is not right, okay? And so what that means is that if we experience any kind of uh, negative impact or stress, it's going to have a much stronger impact on our system than when we receive a positive impact or joy or when we are filled with with gratitude, it has much less lasting impact on our system than if we are experiencing stress, which means that we have to tilt the equation so that in order for our systems to come back into homeostasis and balance, we need a lot more of the good stuff in order to balance out the the stressful stuff, because the stressful stuff is like Velcro. It sticks to our systems much easier and much longer than the positive stuff. So the way it works neurochemically is that when we have a thought, it creates neurosynapses that support that same thought happening again. So... If we are filled with thoughts of anxiety, then we are priming our system to have more thoughts of anxiety. If we are filled with thoughts of gratitude, then we are creating the neurosynapses, the brain chemistry, to have more thoughts. Like that. So it isn't, it's not a static thing. And so where we focus our attention determines the neurosynapses that get built and supported and encouraged. So when we spend a lot of time focusing on things that make us feel anxious or things that make us feel 
exhausted or things that make us feel sad or things that make us feel grief-stricken. We are developing the neurosynapses that make grief, anxiety, and sadness uh, stronger. When we focus on joy and gratitude and uh, ease and well-being and laughter, then we open up the, and increase the neuropathways that make joy and laughter and ease and well-being easier. So one of the things that happens for any of us that is in chronic stress is that it's much harder for us to access joy. That's just kind of the way it works. And so you have to kind of prime the pump and give opportunities to go there because it's not easy to get there when the system has been under too much stress. And so we have to figure out ways of doing that. And so we do. And we support our systems re-remembering what it feels like to be filled with joy and for our nervous systems to feel calm and ease and relaxed and to feel this and to let ourselves re-remember these experiences of ease and well-being because once we are under too much stress, it's not easy to access those positive experiences. There's a a neuroplasticity saying, what fires together, wires together. Have you heard that? Yeah. And so what that means is where we place our attention is going to determine what gets set up in our brain. So in the same way, if we have water, it runs down a ditch in the sand, it will cut a ditch deeper depending on how much water we pour in that ditch, that drain, yeah? And so the drain itself doesn't have an opinion about where the water goes, but water goes down the easiest channel. That's its nature. And so if we've got a ditch going one way and we want to make it go another way, we either need to dig a deeper ditch or to put something in the way that deflects the water. It's not personal. It's not about us and our capacities as a human being. It's just the way water works. Well, this is just the way brains work. It's not that we're feeling anxious because fundamentally we're an anxious person. But if we have supported pathways that support anxiety, then that is going to be what we experience a lot easier than pathways that support joy. So we've got to turn our focus of attention to reestablish joy as something that we make a priority about. So the reason why I think that neuroplasticity is applied dependent co-arising is because the Buddha spoke about this mechanism of ignorance conditioning our habits and those habits then impressing itself onto our sense gates and then our sense gates looking at the world in order 
to pick information that reinforces the habit. That's the basic teachings of the cycle of dependent origination. And what neuroscience does is it says, yes, that's exactly what happens. And then because our systems get stuck in these ruts, we need to put extra muscle in turning away from certain things and towards other things in order to tip the balance towards well-being when our systems have experienced a certain amount of stress. And so that's true when there's been a toxic overload or there's been a stroke or there's been a traumatic brain injury or there's certain kinds of illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome or chemical sensitivity or fibromyalgia or um, any of those things, the brain gets stuck into a rut where it is perceiving the world as a dangerous place even sometimes when there are no immediate stressors that are dangerous present. It becomes a habit of danger rather than a current and real experience of danger. And any of us who've experienced that sense of hypervigilance knows what I'm talking about. The system is just looking for danger, and there isn't any. But it's just on red alert. Red alert, red alert, you know? But there actually isn't any danger. So scanning, scanning, where is it? Where is it? It's got to be, it's got, you know, where is it? What, where, where, where? And, and it isn't anywhere. But we, our system is so used to the scanning that we don't know how to get out of that in order to relax. And if you've been with friends who've got chemical sensitivity, you know, and you watch them, what happens to them when they come into a new space. They come into a new space and it's like, okay, what's in here that's going to get me? You know, Are there perfumes? Are there candles? Is there any chemical substances that are in the space? What's going to get me? And so you can watch. You know, Sometimes they're just like really carefully looking. Because their experience has been that there are things that have triggered them and the triggers cause a reaction and the reaction takes a long time to recover from. And so, but part of this is brain-related. Now, I want to tell you two stories and then I'll stop and we'll have some time for questions. So, The person who designed the neuroplasticity program that I'm in, her name is Annie Hopper. And I can't remember all of the list of things that she had. I know, I think she had fibromyalgia, chemical sensitivity, and then she had electromagnetic sensitivity, which means basically that you become allergic to electricity. Okay? So she became allergic to electricity and had to move out of her house because her house was making her sick. So she moved into a houseboat. And she had the brainwave to think, it's, this is happening in here. It's not out there. 
it's not an out there thing. It looks like it's out there, but it's not. It's in here. It's got to be happening with the way my brain is perceiving thing, that this extraordinary sensitivity is spreading from one domain to the next domain to the next domain. And there has got to be a way to turn the brain around so that it stops doing that. The other person who I find quite amazing is Joe Dispenza. Joe Dispenza is a, was a chiropractor who loved talking about quantum mechanics and the infinite possibilities that are, that are available in, in the quantum field. And he was in a race, a bicycle race, and hit by a pickup truck and had seven broken vertebrae in his neck. And the doctor said to him, you need surgery, and if you don't have surgery, you're never going to be able to walk again. And if you do have surgery, you are going to be in pain the rest of your life. And he said, I want to do this a different way. And so he absolutely understood that the nature of the mind is is that it's open and it's luminous and it's flexible. And that he had confidence that if he could drop into the quality of mind where there is absolutely no identification with the idea of who and what we are, then from that space, he could envision a healthy body that would form from this template of the luminous mind rather than trying to heal the brokenness from just applying medicine to it. So he used the non-dual experience of pure awareness practices to elicit in him the joy and the qualities that allowed him to envision health and radiance. And in 10 weeks, he was treating his patients again. And in 14 weeks, he was training on his bicycle again. And he does these big, huge conferences with people all over the world with all kinds of health issues, mental and physical health issues, dropping them into this field where there is no identification with anything. And from that, eliciting the joy and the vision of health that allows them, in some instances, to have significant shifts in their mind-body systems so that they experience tremendous healing. This is also the result of neuroplasticity. And it's also the result of the Buddha's teachings on the nature of who and what we are fundamentally. That we are not the ideas that we hold about ourselves. We are not limited to what we have been through. We are not limited by the definitions of our beliefs. 
And when we can touch into that luminous, radiant quality of knowing, we have the possibility of profound transformation and healing that can impact our physical bodies, our heart, and our beliefs. And to me, that's the magnificence of this rewiring for joy, is that we can put all of this together. So let me pause here and invite questions or comments for a few minutes, and then we will do our dedication of metta. Yes, please. Well, you got me wanting to know a lot more about this, and probably a lot of us. Um, this notion of rewiring for joy, what does that look like, practically speaking, um, th- ways that we can redirect towards joy? Um, you mentioned laughter. What are some other just concrete practices that we can try? So one that? concrete practice is that as we, one of our, our tasks is to begin to identify our negative habits, what they look like. So one way that we can do it is by any time they arise to have a way of redirecting it. Okay? So changing the language that we use, uh, turning it into something other than that. So one of the people on the forum was saying that anytime something like that arises for herself, her response is to say, I, f- I am confident, I am independent, and I can handle whatever arises. So when you're flooded with the feeling of anxiety or overwhelm, your response is to say, I feel confident, I am independent, and I can handle whatever arises. So the anxiety is telling you the opposite, and you counter it. So that's one thing, is opposites. The other is to come up with a toolkit of things that will distract you, Um, a list of music, pictures that make you laugh, videos that are funny or amusing, things that take your mind off of what's happening and redirect your attention, Uh, fragrances that just calm you. Then there's a way of connecting with people. So one of the ways that we can be pulled out of our habits is to engage in connection with somebody else. So one of the people who uh, showed me um, a system of body exercises was saying that when he flies, he gets anxious. And so what he just does is that he goes into a store. It doesn't matter that he doesn't know the clerk. And he just starts talking about nothing with the clerk. And to speak about nothing with somebody that you don't know will pull you out of the loop that you're in and redirect your attention to something else. So we can do that with total strangers, but we can also develop friends and buddies that we call each other up or we are available to each other to to do something uh, spontaneous. 
So the neuroplasticity community that I'm in, we have pop-up laughter groups where two to three times a day for five minutes or 15 minutes or a half an hour, we get together and laugh. And it's an international community, so people are there from all over the place. And it's totally awesome. It's absolutely awesome. No, laughing yoga is not about telling jokes. It's about laughing at nothing. <laughs> so there's a whole practice of laughing at nothing. And, and if you're interested in laughing yoga, there's a laughing yoga group that meets in Oakland on the second and the fourth Monday of the month. And it's awesome. It's at Kaiser. It's at Kaiser. It's free. And if you're interested, I can, I can tell you more. I just I wanted to say a couple of things. But one of one uh, about many years ago, I don't know if they still have this anymore. They, uh, if you had a, a, a you got a, a speeding ticket or some kind of um, driving of a violation, um, you would have to go to um, a, a driving class, um, and they had uh, comedians teaching the classes. And I remember going to a, a class in Berkeley where I felt like I laughed almost continuously for seven or eight hours. And I will never forget the way that I felt at the end of the day. I had never experienced anything like that. I felt like just really wonderful, really kind, of, kind of high, high as a kite, but, but, but still connected to reality. Um, so I, 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 Totally agree with what you're saying, um, but the the uh, I, I have a question about the whole the joy um, sort of the, the 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 neuroplasticity and whether yeah, I'm wondering that if going doing the things that you love to do like I, I really enjoy live music and that brings me a great deal of joy. Um, doing more of what brings you joy sound, it to me sounds a little bit different from being in, say, a state of high anxiety and needing to find joy in that moment and, and developing tools. But I'm also wondering if you have more joy in your life in terms of how you're leading your life, whether that's also a way of rewiring your brain. Well, I think, I think, um, that we can see that the skillful choices that we make in our life have an impact. And the impact um, d d changes the habits that we have. And so I think you're correct that the more we have joy in our lives, the more that that rewires our brain, and that is a good thing to do. So the Buddha's teaching is about developing a life of skillfulness and healthy, wholesome living and increasing the joy that we experience and uh, gratitude and uh, integrity. And that has tremendous blessings and tremendous benefit. And so, and it's, it's time-honored and proven it works. It definitely does work. And, and so I think that uh, these communities of people who are experiencing so much stress and these particular kinds of illnesses... Um, they're using more concentrated um, focuses to shift the habit of uh, for for these particular medical reasons. 
But like with Joe Dispenza, he's not dealing with a particular demographic of people who are dealing with certain illnesses. He's dealing with uh, just people who are wanting to have radical state shifts, and they're doing that from coming into a place of just complete non-identification and from that uh, emerging into something else. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, uh, it's I'm a little bit past time, so let me... Um, let me Let's shift gears and just bring our focus of attention to a heart of kindness, a heart of We'll start with a heart of kindness and then we'll shift to gratitude. And as we bring forward a heart of kindness, and so as we bring forward a heart of kindness, we can allow ourselves to be filled with loving kindness and allow that loving kindness to wash through our body and our heart and our mind and our nervous system. And as it washes through us and fills us up and fills us to the brim and overflows, it can fill up this space and it can flood out into the streets and seep into our homes, into our communities, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, and fill up the atmosphere that engulfs and surrounds this entire planet Earth, with all of the living beings that are present. And we can change gears and switch from loving kindness to gratitude, to having the blessings of this magnificent space and this community that has been together for so many decades with such loving and skillful leadership from James and all of his teaching colleagues. And for the blessings of our own lives to have an opportunity to practice, to hear teachings, and for the auspicious potential of our own complete and utter freedom. We can share the blessings of this evening with all beings. May it be so. May it be so. May it truly be so. So thank you so much for your presence and for coming this evening. And I am living in the area. I hope to see you more often. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.